0: If you're looking for a Bible text to turn to, oh, you'll get some. Um, we'll probably be uh, in First Peter the most, maybe 1 Corinthians three, stay where, uh, stay where Mark had you, First Corinthians three, stay there. When the early churches were planted, they were planted With clear instructions from the apostles, the the men who, who planted them. They were established on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles. But here's what happened. As any organization composed of sinning humans does, every single early church drifted away from their foundation. And so what we see in the New Testament is that every letter of the New Testament, whether it be from Paul or Peter or John or James or Jude, every letter calls the church back to who she's called to be. And because we're like them, because we're like those churches in Corinth and Philippi and Galatia and Ephesus and Smyrna and so on, because we are just like those people in those churches we also need to be realigned with who we've been called to be. And so that's what this series these past few weeks has been about as we begin our summer together. Josh, a couple weeks ago, reminded us from 1 Peter what or rather, would you say, who the church is. He he reminded us from 1 Peter that church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And we, as the people of God, have been brought into union with Christ, who is the true Israel. And that's why you see echoes of Israel's identity there in the New Testament. Last week, Pastor Saunders reminded us from the Scriptures how it is that we as a church maintain the the, the integrity and the witness of the church through church discipline. And this week, following that, we're going to focus on our mission as Christ's church. Why are we here? What exactly has Christ brought this body of believers together for? What purpose? Why is it, if we have been redeemed by Christ, why don't we just go to heaven immediately upon our baptism? Why does the church exist on earth? What is she for? And here's the thing, if we don't question examine this question biblically, then what happens is we make up our own mission. We begin to think more in terms of what we want the church to be rather than who we are called to be. And we end up settling for this mission that would be very similar to what any other human organization would have, like a business. How do I know that? Well, I'm gonna read you a few mission statements that I have obfuscated, and I want you to guess whether what I'm reading is from a church or a business, and you'll see how complicated this is. All right, here's one. To build a better world, helping people live better while building thriving, resilient communities. Church or business? It's a Walmart, good. (laughs) "To, To provide a place where the depressed the hurting, and hopeless can come and find help. We want to be a place of family, community, and hope. Church. Saddleback. It's depressing. (laughs) Next one. To help all families discover the joy of everyday life. Target. (sighs) To create unique, positive experiences while fostering strong community connections. Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> to create a radically inclusive, just, and loving community mobilized to alleviate suffering and break the cycles of poverty and marginalization. That's church. That's Glide Church in San Francisco. Yep. The next one. To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that he has entrusted to us. Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And finally, last one, to give everyone the inspiration to create a life that they love. Pinterest. Okay. Okay, so here's, you see what I'm getting at. Does any of what we just read describe the reason Christ went to the cross to redeem a people for his own possession? Not really. Now, here's the thing. Most churches, most evangelical churches know that. And so they get closer by making some variation of Matthew 28, their mission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all of Christ's commands. That's a biblical statement, isn't it? But if that's the church's mission, then are we not living out that mission if we stay in one place instead of going? Go and make disciples of all nations? Are we disobedient because Del Cero has never planted a church in Yemen? Must we go to all the nations? What about those of us who are here? What are the people who stay home supposed to be doing If the church's mission is to go, are we just all disobedient? And just just to push back on this a little bit, to make you think a little bit, if go and make disciples of all nations is the church's mission, then why is it that in all of the letters to the churches, we don't see that? Why did Paul, Never tell the Corinthians or the Galatians or the Philippians or the Thessalonians or the Colossians that was their assignment. Why did Peter, who received that command from Christ, he was there, why did he not repeat that command to the churches in Pontus and Cappadocia and Bithynia? Why did John, who was also there with Jesus when he received that command, why did John not repeat that command to the church in Ephesus? He had plenty of letters to write. Why did James, and we'll examine James in a couple weeks, why did James not say anything about the so-called Great Commission to the churches scattered about from Jerusalem? In fact, James says it would be better if you didn't teach. How do we line that up with Matthew 28? Here's the difficulty. If we flatline all of Scripture then we kind of miss the contours of the whole Bible story. The difficulty is that in the New Testament, you have Jesus, the Messiah, sent by God as the anointed king to redeem his people, and then throughout his life, he teaches the apostles, he is the Messiah, this is what that means. And then because he claimed to be God, and because he exposed the teachers of Israel as idolatrous hypocrites, he was killed. And as a result of his death, it appeared to everyone... Including those disciples who had been taught for three years, it appeared to everyone that Jesus' mission to be the king of Israel and to spread God's kingdom throughout the earth, it appeared that that mission had failed. He failed. But then, praise God, by the power of God, Jesus is resurrected. By God, which, which vindicated his claim that he truly is the Messiah. And he, he then teaches his disciples more through this in-depth study of the Old Testament. And what he taught them was that his death and his resurrection were actually a part of his mission. The one who would be the Messiah had to be killed. And he had to rise up from the grave on the third day. All of this happened according to God's great plan from before the ages began, and it's all right there in their Bibles, plain as day. And then Jesus tells his disciples, here's where we get to that great commission, Jesus tells his disciples, essentially, because you are the witnesses of this, you saw this with your eyes, and you see that in John's letters and Peter's letters, we saw with our eyes, we heard with our ears, he says, you've got to go tell everyone what you saw and what I taught Tell everyone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to all the nations. Why? Why do you have to tell them? Because God said that when Messiah comes, the nations will be brought in to the kingdom of God. The nations would be blessed through Messiah. So that great commission at the end of Matthew 28 then is the mission that Jesus gives the apostles to take the message that Messiah has come to the nations. And all those nations were to repent of their idolatry and their self exaltation and turn to the true God, Yahweh, King Jesus, the Christ, and worship Him alone. It took them a while, but the disciples eventually began to do this. After some pushing, they eventually did what Jesus called them to they went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the nations. They moved westward from Judea to Turkey and Greece and Italy and all the way to Spain, proclaiming the message Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And they moved south and southwest through eastern and northern Africa and they proclaimed Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Messiah. And they moved south and eastward and they went across the Arabian Peninsula and many believed that the gospel made it all the way to India, all in one generation. The ends of the known world heard the news that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is the Messiah. The nations would be included in Christ's heavenly kingdom that was and is and is to come. And so wherever those people who were reached with the gospel, wherever they came to faith in Jesus Christ, churches were established. And all of those little house churches we a part of the one big universal church, that larger set of people known as the church. So the commissioning of the disciples then in Matthew 28 was immensely important, wasn't it? It had the purpose of establishing the church. But then what is the church's purpose? Is it the same thing? Kind of. But we have so much Bible that we can zero in a little more closely on what the church's mission is. So what we're going to do this morning is, is examine what the apostles told us the church is supposed to be doing. What is our mission? And we're going to do that through looking at four ways that they describe the church in the New Testament. So here are the four ways that we're going to examine. The first is this. The church is described as God's field Secondly, the church is described as Christ's body. Thirdly, Christ's bride. And finally, God's temple. So the field, the body, the bride, and the temple. So we saw in in Mark's reading of 1 Corinthians 3 that the church is God's field. So turn with me there, back to that passage. And what you see there is Paul is helping this church, that is, already been a part of the Great Commission, right? The church started in Jerusalem, went up to Antioch, from Antioch over to Corinth. So now we have some ends of the earth stuff happening here. There's a church there. It's established. What are they supposed to do? Well, first of all, they're fighting, and so they're supposed to get over their petty divisiveness. Some in the church considered themselves Paul's people. Some said, no, we're a Paul's people, and it led to this tribalism, and Paul said, stop. And so what he does then is remind the church of of what he and Apollos are. Look look again at verse 6. Paul says, The Lord assigned me the task of planting the gospel in Corinth. That's what I did. The Lord assigned Apollos the task of watering what was planted, and that's what he did. But God, the owner of the field, he gave the growth. So verse seven says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. In other words, we're just servants. We just work here. We work for the master, the owner. We do what he says. We get paid. We go home. We are nobodies. Stop looking at us. God is the one who gives the growth. So God is the one that you owe your allegiance to, all of you together. So if Paul is a servant... And Apollos is a servant. God is the master. What does Paul say the church is? Look at verse 9. You are God's field. The church is God's field. In other words, church, you're just dirt. (laughs) We're dirt. What is the mission of dirt? Sounds funny, doesn't it? When you put it that way, it just doesn't, doesn't dirt just exists. Its mission is to just sit there and be dirt, be the place where other things happen. But if we were to, to stretch the metaphor, anthropomorphize the dirt and assign it a mission statement, we might say this. First of all, the dirt is to receive the seed. Do you see that? If Paul scatters the seed and the dirt doesn't receive it, then... So, 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 so the dirt is to receive the seed, which is, in this case, the gospel, Paul planted the seed. He preached the gospel. Secondly, the dirt is to receive the nourishment of the water. Apollos continued to show the church from the scriptures that Jesus really is the Messiah. And that's all Apollos did. He preached Christ from the scriptures. And they saw Christ from this angle, from that angle, from Abraham's story, and Moses' story, and from Isaiah. They're seeing Christ. He showed them what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And that water is that continued teaching about Christ. So they had to receive that as well. Thirdly, the dirt is to be the medium in which God grows the crop that has been planted. All right, so be dirt. Let stuff grow. And What is this crop that grows? Now, Paul doesn't say because he assumes that we already know that he's referring to Isaiah. He's simply quoting Isaiah when he describes the church as God's field. And here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 61. Speaking of the church, Isaiah says, For as the church, or as the earth rather, brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. Righteousness and praise. Do you see that? With the seeds of the gospel in us, What grows for the Lord of the harvest is righteousness and praise. The righteousness of Christ given to us is made visible in us, and praise for God is heard among us and seen in us. So, receive the seed, receive the water, and God will bring forth righteousness and praise, growth among us. That's the church's mission as the field. And it is entirely passive. Isn't that odd? When we think of the church as a field of dirt, we don't plant the seeds. The evangelist does that. We don't water the seeds. The teacher does that. We don't grow the seeds. God does that. And that's the point of Paul's message. As a people... Here's what what we're tempted with. We are tempted to think very highly of what we can accomplish. What we're capable of. And that temptation can sometimes lead us to sinful ambition. Think of our study in Genesis and Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. Eager... To see God's promises fulfilled in their own power, they took matters into their own hands rather than waiting on the Lord. Abraham and Sarah forgot that they were dirt. They forgot that their job was to simply trust the Lord and wait on him. They forgot that simply continuing in faithfulness to God is all they were called to do. Sometimes what, what we as the church do, and I'm talking about Del Cerro, I haven't seen this here, but in general, what we as especially American evangelicals, what we try and do is force a revival. Right? And all we're doing when we do that is spreading our dirtiness everywhere. And we're deluding ourselves into thinking that we're changing the world. But what the scriptures are reminding us of here is the importance of being dirt. We're manure. We are sand, we are clay, we are itty-bitty rocks all mixed together in which God brings forth his good harvest for his namesake, for his satisfaction, for his glory. And that is a good thing. It's a good thing. God gets the glory when his word is implanted in us and grows to fullness. So we as a church, are fulfilling his mission, our mission, when we grow in Christ's righteousness and when we praise God with our lives. It's really not complicated, is it? So let me just, here's your application for the first bit. Do not minimize that role that you've been assigned. To receive the word of God with joy is a miracle, To to receive the ongoing teaching that magnifies Christ all the more, that's a beautiful thing. And to be the soil where righteousness and praise flourish, don't think that that's a little thing. Because you're not Paul or because you're not Apollos, don't think you're less valuable to God. Being dirt that brings forth righteousness and praise to God brings glory to God. That's our purpose. So let's be, Del Ciro. let's be the dirtiest church we can. Yes. Amen? All right, secondly, the church is the body of Christ. We've got the field of dirt, the body of Christ. This descriptor we see all over the New Testament. This, I believe, is Paul's favorite. If I knew Paul well enough to, to, to say that, I would say this is his favorite descriptor of the church. He uses it most often. And it's the one that, that we see coming up in a variety of different um, circumstances. Sometimes Paul uses his description of the church as the body to help us understand how it is we relate to one another. We are parts of a whole, and we see that in all of these. It never is the church a, a, a non-composite unity. It's, it's always a composite. It's always all of us together, one. And so that the body is, is one, but there are parts of the body. And he helps us to understand how we relate to one another. But sometimes he helps us to, to see that the church as the body shows us what our purpose is. So so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll see the description of the church as Christ's body help us understand what the church's purpose is. Because as you hear these descriptors, and they're not metaphors, they're realities, these realities of who the church is, these, these, uh, these descriptions of the nature of the church, they should help us understand the purpose by what the nature is dirt has a purpose a body has a purpose so look at ephesians 4 11, and we'll see what the body's purpose is he gave christ ascended into heaven gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of christ so we could say then, from, from that verse 11 and 12, we could say that the mission of the church is to be built up. You see that? He's, he's given these gifts to the church for a purpose, and that is to build up the church. So the, purchase, the church must be built up. Again, though, this is a passive mission. Do you see that? It's something that happens to us, at least in this first part. We are built up by the word given to us by our teachers who received it from the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. So let's keep going. Look at verse 13. So we are being built up until... You see that in verse 13? Until. And that says there's a point to this. There's a point to this mission. A telos, an end. Something shows us mission accomplished. What is that? We are built up until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So then, this this building up that the church is undergoing as, as a body is a building up towards something, towards unity of the faith and knowing Christ. You see that? So our goal then in being built up is unity of the faith and knowledge of Christ. And how does that happen? How do we grow towards unity in the faith and knowledge of Christ? Well, the shepherds and teachers, which is to say pastors, the the, the pastors take the, the teaching of the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, that is to say the Bible, now that the Lord has completed it, and through that teaching of the Bible, we grow Together, we grow unified in what we believe and confess about Christ and His Word. So, a part of our mission then is simply to grow in our understanding of the Word together. Together. Now, this is biblical, but there are some who would say, no, 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 no. Doctrine, growing in your knowledge of the Bible, that's not important. Studying theology, studying the attributes of God, singing about the Trinity and talking about what that means, that just slows the church down. What we really need to be doing is getting out there and making converts. In fact, and I never do this, but I'm going to this week because he started it. Rick Warren, in his letter to all 47,000 pastors of the Southern Baptist Convention this week, he sent us all a letter and he said... We don't need to be unified in our confession of faith because that hinders us from the Great Commission. To which Paul would say, no. Our mission, our purpose, and let's be purpose-driven, our purpose is to grow, is to grow in a common confession of faith, a a, a common knowledge of Christ. In fact, that is, aids the Great Commission, if we're going to bring that into discussion, because if that commission is to make disciples and teach them all that Christ commanded, we must teach what Christ commanded. So Warren is undermining not only Christ's commands by saying that women should be pastors, but he's also undermining the Great Commission that he speaks of by telling people to neglect Christ's commands. A part of our mission, church, as Christ's body is to be built up, and we are built up by sound doctrine. sound That's what feeds us. That's what nourishes us. So keep looking at verse 13. We are moving towards something. We're moving towards this unity in the faith, and, and, and Paul continues to, to take the, the uh, picture of the, of the man. We're moving towards mature manhood. Do you see that in verse 13? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Why is that important? There's a reason that we must grow in this way. So that, he says, we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So what is the mission of this body? to continue to grow in maturity, and to be strengthened so that we will not be tossed about. You could picture the image here. Think of a toddler at the beach. She wades into the water. Mom's looking at her phone. Baby wades into the water. The wind picks up. The waves pick up, and it's rolling, and she gets smacked by the waves, knocked down, tossed about, rolled and rolled and rolled. All right, that's, that's the image. That's the, the, the little one tossed about. Now contrast that to the ideal that he's picturing for us here, a fully grown Chad who takes care of his body and he eats healthy and he lifts weights. The same wind-driven shorebreaker that completely tossed the toddler hits this grown man in his knees and he just keeps walking, right? Do you see that? Are you picturing that? That's the difference that he's showing us. So we are to grow in maturity and strength so that we will not be led astray by false teaching. We won't be knocked down, drowned. And the means through which the church undergoes this strengthening is the true teachings that point us to Christ again, Christ again, Christ again, Christ again. That's the church's nourishment. And just as our bodies grow in that way, we we have to ingest the food, right? Right? We can't can't just look at the food. We grow as a church by submitting ourselves to the teaching of Scriptures. You don't grow by looking at the food on your plate. You have to submit yourself to it. You have to chew it, you have to eat it, savor it, ingest it. If we merely look at the doctrines of the faith and say, well, that's, you know, that's not for me, that's your opinion, or I'm allergic to that or I don't like that, or that was just for the church a long time ago, not us today, then then by rejecting the teaching of the apostles, the food that is meant to nourish us and strengthen us and grow us, we won't grow. We will not be strengthened. And we'll be tossed about by whatever comes our way, whether that be feminism or wokeism or pragmatism or Arianism, Pelagianism, works righteousness, whatever it is, there's always waves coming. There's always winds coming. We must be strengthened. The writings of the prophets, apostles, and evangelists that point us to Christ, and those writings expounded upon by our pastors, help us to grow into maturity. And that's the body's mission, to grow And so we grow into Christ, our head, through better knowing Christ through the scriptures. Two really underwhelming images. You were expecting me to say the church is an army. No, it's not. It's a field of dirt and a body. And both of these... Scriptures have elements of receiving the word, don't they? Do you see that? Receiving the word, receiving the word, and growth. Growth for the purposes of the field owner and growth into Christ, our head. Thirdly, related to the body, the church is the bride of Christ. And we see this in several places in the scriptures. First, in the prophets, in the Old Testament. And then Jesus describes the church this way. And John describes the church this way in Revelation. And we see this as well in Ephesians. So just stay where you are in Ephesians. We'll look there. Paul describes the church as Christ's bride in Ephesians chapter 5. And what really this is, is an exhortation to married couples. And you heard this at Britton Lane's wedding, if you were there with us on Thursday. Uh, but the, 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 the apostle reminds the church of something that they already know. What is that? Well, the church is to be the bride of Christ and they are to submit to Christ. And so what he's telling the the wives there is that they are to submit to their husbands. But what I want you to see is that assumption that he's already proving to us. He assumes they know that the church is the bride of Christ, whose mission, whose purpose, whose job in life is to submit to Christ her head. That's the church's role. It's an assumption. It's assumed here. The groom's mission That's the church's mission, submit to Christ. The groom's mission is to lay down his life for the bride. And that's what Christ has done for us. And he did that for a reason. Look at verse 26. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Christ has laid down his life for his bride so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish christ goes to the cross for his bride the bride is cleansed by the word there's the word again do you see that and what's happening here's the 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 big picture As the church receives the word, which is the gospel, the good news of Christ, this is the truth. Jesus is our Messiah. He died in accordance with the scriptures. He rose in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven. When we receive that word, just as Trevor and Zach and Georgia received that word by the Holy Spirit's power, they were united to Christ in his death and cleansed, washed, washed. Washed in the waters of baptism, and then raised up pure and blameless and holy as they became members of Christ's church, his bride. So, then, what is the mission of a bride, the bride? What's well, the same mission as the field, same mission as the body? Receive the word. Receive the word. The bride imagery helps us to see that the bride has to be cleansed, that she must be washed, she must be made holy, and presented to the groom as his cherished one. And then as the bride, she submits herself to the groom as her Lord, which in the case of the church means to live in obedience to Christ our Lord. So the mission of the bride of Christ is to be cleansed through receiving the message of the cross in Christ our King, to be made more and more beautiful to her husband through cheerfully submitting to him. Right? Still not complicated. That's the bride imagery in Ephesians. I want to show you also, though, John's bride imagery from the book of Revelation. The bride in Revelation chapter 19 gives us a slightly different angle of the same thing. So speaking of that day that we all await when when Christ the bridegroom returns for the great wedding feast, Revelation 19, verse 6 says, "'Then I heard what seemed to be "'the voice of a great multitude, "'like the roar of many waters "'and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder "'crying out, "'Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, "'the Almighty reigns. "'Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory.'" For the marriage of the Lamb has come, here's the marriage, and look at verse 7, the second part, and his bride, that's the church, his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, that, so the bride's mission in Revelation, following, receiving the word, her purpose is to make herself ready for the wedding. To get dressed. And what will she wear? The righteous deeds of the saints. Do you see that in verse 8? The righteous deeds of the saints. This does not mean that the bride makes herself qualified to marry the groom through her good works. That's not what that means. God is the one at work, even in this. The bride is chosen by the groom, and he's described as the lamb here because he's rescued the the bride by his sacrificial death as the lamb. And then verse eight says it was granted to the bride to clothe herself with this garment. She didn't earn it. She didn't go out and get it. The right of clothing herself in righteous deeds is granted to her by virtue of the lamb's work. He's cleansed her. He's made her beautiful. She simply responds to this privilege by receiving the adornment of the righteous deeds. Good works. And what is good works here? In in, in Revelation, it just means endurance in the faith. Endurance in the faith. In the face of opposition. Endurance in the faith through trials. Enduring in the faith through persecution. Enduring in the faith through temptation. Always saying and believing and living the reality, I am Christ's. I belong to him. He will redeem me. He will rescue me. That's the adorning of the church. And there's something, something we need to know about this adorning. This beauty. The beauty of Christ's bride, the church, is different than the beauty of the world. It's different. In Revelation, the adorning of the world, Babylon, is described as scarlet and purple and gold and jewels and pearls. In other words, symbols of wealth, symbols of power. But the adorning of the church, in Revelation, is white linen, bright and pure. Purity, holiness, set apart. And here's why I bring this out. As the bride of Christ, the church's beauty is distinct from the world's. In fact, what makes the church beautiful is her distinctiveness from the world. Our, our temptation is to define beauty according to the world's definition because we live in the world and we want the attention of the world. We think the church is only beautiful and successful if she is large in number and powerful and wealthy. Not so. Not so. The church is to be distinct from the world in righteousness, in holiness, in purity through our submission to Christ through obedience to his word. And we are to seek to be beautiful to Christ, not the world. As Christ's bride, our desire should be to have eyes for Christ only, to be attractive to Christ only. We have no business making ourselves attractive to the world through softening our message, through conceding our Difficult beliefs, or through compromising our distinctiveness or our holiness. I'm going to say that again. We have no business making ourselves attractive to the world by the world's standards. Our calling is to Christ, our groom we are to be beautiful to him. And what that means is to be distinct from the world in holiness. So the church is God's field, and so we receive the word, and we grow in righteousness and praise. The church is Christ's body, and so we receive the word and grow towards unity in the faith, and so grow in Christ's likeness into our head, who is Christ. The church is Christ's bride, and so again, we receive the word, The cleansing we're made holy and we live out that purity that christ gives us and we submit to christ the bridegroom continuing in the faith never compromising never abandoning the faith and we are adorned by him we're made beautiful by him finally this brings us to our last one the church as god's temple We see this throughout the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As we saw, Paul, led by the Spirit, says to the church, Do you not know you are God's temple? And he's talking to you, plural, there. You, the church, Corinth, you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. In Ephesians, he says the same thing. You all are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure of the temple, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, church in Ephesus, church in Delcero, in La Mesa, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit see that dwelling place dwelling place temple temple and then peter first peter chapter 2 says verse 5 says we are living stones built up as a spiritual house it's a dwelling place for the spirit a house is a place where something lives spirit lives here that's what the temple is it's a dwelling place of god God dwells eternally in His heavenly temple. And the earthly temples throughout history, from Eden to the tabernacle to Solomon's temple, all those were a sort of intersection between heaven and earth. God's dwelling was with man through these places, these temples. Not that God could be contained within a temple, but the temple was that holy place that had been set apart For God's purposes. And those priests who entered into the presence of God came with the atonement for sins that God provided. And then they mediated God's presence from the temple to the people. So it is with Jesus Christ. He has made final atonement for sins at the cross. He is God's presence because He is God. Thus He was and is the fulfillment of that old temple. Forgiveness for sins presence of god and when he ascended into the true heavenly temple not made with hands he poured out his spirit upon his church and the spirit is god and now the forgiveness of sins and the presence of god is mediated through a people not a building but because it's like the building we call it a temple. It's Christ's church. We are, as individuals, we are the building materials of God's temple. So what then is the purpose or the mission of this new creation living temple? Well, be the temple. Okay, well, how do we do that? Well, the old temple contained in its holy place the testimony of God. And that testimony is two things. The stone tablets of the law, which is the word of God, but also the physical evidence of the redemption of God's people. In that holy place, there was manna from heaven that fed people in the wilderness. And there was Aaron's staff through which the miracles of redemption happened. And this staff was to be a sign of God's power and salvation. Likewise, the church contains the testimony of God. We have the law written on our hearts. We have the physical evidences of God's redeeming work here with us whenever we're gathered. We have Christ, our bread from heaven, here. And so a church celebrates this reality through the Lord's Supper, and we'll do that today. The supper is a visible reminder of the provision that Christ is. Our manna from heaven. We also have baptism. We see the means through which Christ defeated our enemy, death. He was buried and he rose again and we're buried with him in baptism and we rise again. The church has the testimony of God's work among us. His word, his law written on our hearts, the Lord's Supper, baptism. These same elements of the temple, wherever the church gathers, are with us. Only it's no longer a building, is it? It's a, it's a people. The temple was also a place of the forgiveness of sins. Likewise, we are the people of whom Christ said, John 20, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, now, what gives the church this authority? Because that makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? This is one of those eat your vegetables moments. This will nourish you. What gives the church this authority? The gospel. As we have received the testimony of Christ, that he was crucified, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, he was seen by hundreds, he ascended to heaven and poured out his spirit. So we preach that gospel, and whoever receives that testimony as truth, repents of their sins, is born again, and they're forgiven. They're born again into Christ. Being in Christ means you're forgiven. So here's the thing, and I want to quote Jim Hamilton here because he says it better than I can. He says, it is the church who has been given the authority by Christ himself to assure those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ that their sins are forgiven. So my duty, our duty together is to assure you if you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And we do that every Sunday. Confess our sins and say, your sins are forgiven if you are in Christ. And the church has authority to say those who do not repent and believe, they are not a part of the church and have no reason to think that their sins are forgiven. So, just as the church can assure you your sins are forgiven because you are living in obedience to Christ, you've repented of your sins, the church can also take away that assurance that we have together to give you the church has the ability to assure those who believe jesus and repent of sin that they are indwelt by the spirit and thus part of the temple right likewise the church warns those who do not repent and do not believe They are not a part of the temple because there's no evidence that the Spirit is in them. And so they are without God in the world. And that should remind you of Pastor Saunders' sermon. Last week, church discipline is actually a part of our purpose as the temple. God is building the temple. But we're taking part in that building process And as we are built up, we are a part of that stone selection process. We affirm, yes, this is a stone that belongs in the temple. And you did that today when you affirmed that you have seen evidence of salvation in Trevor and Zach and Georgia. You affirmed that they, by at least our human judgment, they have been born again. They're living in repentance and faith. And so because they have the spirit, they are a part of the temple. And that leads us to the last aspect of the church's mission as the temple. Because we have the Spirit, the church is where the presence of God dwells with humanity. We have the Spirit. And because the Spirit is God, we have the presence of God, and because we have God's presence, His glory is made known to the nations through us. Wherever the church gathers... God is there making his dwelling place among humanity. And the world sees those churches. And the world sees the Spirit's presence in us through our living as a people who are indwelt by the Spirit. And what does that look like? Well, Peter says, looks like this. Look at verse 12. Uh, uh, where were we? First Peter 2, verse 12. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the world. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds that are spirit wrought in us and glorify God on the day of visitation. So when the world sees the temple, they are to see our good deeds. If you have the spirit, the temple has the spirit by definition, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit's presence. The presence of the Spirit is manifest in the church through the fruit of the Spirit, the good deeds of the Spirit. And that leads others to glorify God. Jesus says this as well. We are a city on a hill, he says, which is another way of describing the temple. And what is the light that shines forth from that city that he says you cannot put out? Let your light shine before others, Matthew five sixteen, As that temple... City on the hill. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. It's the same thing Isaiah said about the field, wasn't it? The Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations, the world. And that gives God glory and the world sees it. But our good deeds, these good works that we are walking in as the church, shining the light, of the Spirit's presence in us, these good deeds are not silent. Peter takes this reality of the people of God as the temple and says in 1 Peter 3.9 that we are to proclaim it. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that city of light, that city on a hill, that temple of God. Proclaim the excellencies of our Redeemer in word and in deed, and so give glory to God. And so take the glory of God Shine the glory of God to the nations. I'll summarize the mission of the church this way. Last statement. Having all of these four identities together, church as the field, the body, and the bride, and the temple. This is long, okay? But you will grow into it. Receive the word. Believe the word know the word, submit to the word, obey the word, and so grow in maturity, in strength, and in beauty. And as the temple, we manifest the presence of God to the nations by proclaiming the word and living lives marked by the Holy Spirit in us who takes the word of Christ, inscribes it on our hearts, and transforms us to live for him. I told you it was long, but you'll grow into it because we're gonna do this again and again and again until Christ returns or we die, amen? Let's praise him.